I always love it when we have a little folk music at Bethel. An important caveat before I begin. Many have said this is the most difficult passage in the Bible to preach. So we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you want to leave, just slip out real quick. No one will say a word to you about it. No, all kidding aside, if, if you read this text, and I won't ask if you did, you understand why, because it's full of amazing historic detail that's expressed in a cryptic way. Now, I have a recurring dream. I told Lois about this. In my dream, I'm preaching and people start leaving. <laughs> and they continue to leave the entire time I'm preaching. And instead of just stopping like a smart person would do, I just keep going, and I just keep going, and I just keep going, thinking I'm going to turn a corner and fix this mess. And then people leave, and then Lois is always the last one there, and she's just sitting there looking at me like, there you go again. And <laughs> now, if I tried to explain this chapter verse by verse, that dream would doubtless become a reality. So what I'm going to do today is I will deal with it textually and thematically. I'm going to be faithful to the text, true to the intent of the text, but I will not deal with every word in case some of you are nervous about it. So I want you to promise to stay to the end, and those who are faithful to the end will be blessed. There you are, caveat. If you ever, you've heard, if you've heard me preach much, you, you've heard me say probably many, many times when something bad happens to you, if you're a believer, happens to you, can you, anybody finish the sentence? God is up to something good. He's doing something good. Or if something happens to you, something sweet. And you know this, that's based on that idea expressed in the probably one of our favorite Bible verses, verse 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. If something bad is happening to you, then God is doing something good. Something bitter is happening to you. Some, God is doing something sweet. But sometimes it's really hard to believe that. I often tell people there's good in the bad for a believer. There's sweet in the bitter for sure. But sometimes... It really doesn't seem that way to people. Sometimes it doesn't really seem that way to me and you, I'm sure. And sometimes it, it seems like troubles are unrelenting. Sometimes it feels like everyone's stepping on you. Everyone's taking advantage of you. You feel like a doormat or a punching bag. You feel like you're easy to take advantage of. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise. And the clouds will never lift. And the storm will never pass. And sometimes God seems silent even to devout people. God seems distant sometimes even to very devout practicing Christians. Sometimes it feels like your real friends are few and the list of your enemies just keeps growing and growing. Sometimes you feel completely ignored or unloved. And you want to believe that the promises of God are true. And you want to trust the power of God. 
And you want to believe that good will prevail over evil, but you feel like your spirit is just crushed and trampled down. And that must have been how Daniel and the people of God in the time of the Babylonian captivity felt. When Jesus was talking about this time, he even said it this way in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. You can expect to be trampled underfoot. So Daniel 11 and 12, it's actually Daniel 10, 11 and 12, are the fourth and final vision given to Daniel and the conclusion of this amazing book of the Bible. This vision is given to Daniel, if you recall, by the angel, and it was a hated message, and it was opposed by dark, evil, demonic forces. In one of the most dramatic passages of Scripture there that we talked about last week in Daniel in chapter 9. So, the, so, so that even as the message that was given from God was opposed by supernatural opposition, the very message of Daniel itself, the book of Daniel, has been attacked or, or misunderstood by many. And this um, was, re, was received, the book of Daniel was received as it was written until a godless uh, philosopher by the name of Porphyry suggested that this book was written in a different time and by a different person than Daniel during the Babylonian captivity. But here are some reasons why I believe that the book of Daniel is to be accepted, is, is accurate, part of God's word like God's people have for centuries. Here are some reasons. And we'll, we'll, they, some of these will be new to you perhaps, or, or I hadn't mentioned them before. Some I've mentioned before, but I want to reemphasize. Let me just give you a few before we go into Daniel in chapter 11. I, I believe the book of Daniel is accurate because history and prophecy match. And you see that in this. It's probably the main reason why God the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to put all this incredible detail in the book is to show us that history and Bible prophecy match. And you could read it both ways. If we got reliable human history and read it about this period of time that Daniel chapter 11 is talking about, and then we compared it with these cryptic references in Daniel and chapter 11, we would notice Daniel 11 is describing the history of the time. A better way to do that, and probably the intended way, is we read the Bible, and then we look at history and say, well, this is that. And there are, a hundred, there, there are a, a, more than 135 historic details in this passage alone. So it's an incredible thing. The prophecy and the history match. So today's text is an amazing detailed prophecy. And today's text, by the way, is, we haven't read it yet. It's Daniel 11, 1 through 35. We'll deal with the second chunk of this for a good reason next week and then close the series in the week after that in Daniel in chapter 12. We'll not do that today, all of that. We won't go looking at all of the 135 details, but we will summarize them. And we'll point out why God wanted his people then and now to know this. And I'm going to deal with this passage by summarizing its contents and by emphasizing its application. And, and I hope proving to your heart that this is the reason that God wants us to read this book. 
and what the reason that God wanted that original audience to read the book. Now, this book has been opposed and, and it's been uh, attacked, and the mess, just like the message from Gabriel was attacked, and it's also been profoundly defended. But so, the first reason that I believe it's accurate is simply so many of the details, all of the details of Daniel match the history. Now, some people, now even the skeptics believe that. The skeptics even cannot deny that what we read in Daniel lines up with human history. They, they, they're not suggesting it doesn't. They would agree it does. But the only uh, attack that they have leveled against Daniel is to say, well, since the, since the details of Daniel line up so precisely with the details of history, it must not have been written back in the Babylonian period. It must have been written in the Greek or Maccabean period and backdated. Is it? Then that would mean it's a forgery. It wasn't really written by Daniel of history, but somebody that called himself Daniel, and, and it was written after the fact. That's their, that's their suggestion. What's interesting, though, is this. Something happened in 1948, you're familiar with, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and they included the book of Daniel, proving that Daniel existed long before, hundreds of years before the Maccabean period when the skeptics claim that Daniel was written. So the inclusion of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a proof that they were not written after the fact in the Maccabean period, shortly before Christ, but in the Babylonian period, hundreds of years before Christ. So that's the second reason. The third reason is because, and I read an interesting scholarly article, and this is quite involved and quite convincing, the language proves it's authentic. In other words, the style of the Hebrew and the style of the Aramaic that Daniel uses closely parallels the Hebrew and Aramaic of the sixth century before Christ. And this, if you'd read this scholarly article, the, the parts of it we, we are able to understand, you would see the arguments are very profound, very strong. Um, and the the, the language, the Hebrew and the Aramaic of Daniel don't match the Maccabean period. So, and I, this is uh, interesting because years ago, someone said, well, Daniel can't be an authentic product of the Babylonian period because it lists a couple of Greek instruments and Greek influence wasn't in Babylon back then. Well, the guy in the article, he points out, if there had been that kind of Maccabean Greek influence, there would have been a lot more Greek in it than just the name of two musical instruments. And recently, fairly recently, archaeology has discovered the existence of those instruments, those Greek instruments, in the Babylonian period, which silences that argument. Anyway, that's the third. Here's a fourth, and a very convincing one. Why do I believe that Daniel really did record over 135 specific details prophetically hundreds of years before they happened because Jesus believed that and Jesus taught that. Jesus referred to Daniel's prophecy here, Daniel chapter 11, three times in the Olivet Discourse when his disciples asked him about things to come for Israel. His answer refers to Daniel. It's, it's more than remarkable. It's fascinating proof that the Bible is the Word of God, especially when we remember that Jesus, in that great Olivet Discourse about things to come, quoted the prophet three times, using the very text we're teaching today. Jesus believed Daniel was written by Daniel, and at the time of the Babylonian exile, when it claims to have been written. And those who question the reliability of Daniel, then, are impeaching the witness of Jesus Christ himself. This is a serious thing to do. 
So this section will describe the history leading to the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes and the rule of Greece in the ancient world. The chapter sweeps all the way from the time of Daniel through the tribulation in the end times. And the section, verses 1 through 35, that we're going to emphasize today, describes Israel's history and the history of Israel's neighbors uh, from the reign of Persia through the reign of Greece and, and this person, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's already been introduced to us. And he is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that the scripture talks about in the end days. So these are just some interesting things to think about as we approach this amazing passage of scripture. Now, for an overview of the last three chapters of Daniel 10, 11, and 12, um, Daniel 10 is the context of Daniel's fourth vision. It tells about how Daniel reacted to receiving that vision, as you recall. And it's pretty interesting to read, and we studied that last week. Daniel 11, then, contains the vision itself of all this amazing detail, all this amazing prophetic detail about things that were going to happen, very specific things that would happen in the interplay of the nations north and south of, of the land of Israel. And the first half um, is what we'll deal with this week. And the second half points to the future. The only reasonable way to understand the second half of this is to compare it with the rest of the Bible when the Bible talks about a time in the future, in the end time. And, uh, and so it obviously is fascinating. In other words, next week we talk about the Antichrist, and next week we talk about Armageddon. These are things that should interest Christians. And then Daniel 12, then, is the Denouement. It's the wrap-up. It's the conclusion of the vision, the conclusion of the book, and the end of time as we know it. And it gives us the, the final conclusion on the story of Daniel in the Bible. And so that's what Daniel 10 and 11 and 12 do. One pass over Daniel chapter 11 verses 2 through 35 can be divided in four sections. If you studied it real carefully, and by the way, a, a, you know, a really good a very, very, very good teacher that, was, that understood his or her history could actually tell us the stories of history and then could point to these references in Daniel in chapter 11. And it would be, they would obviously correspond point to point. And, the, and, and by the way, these are dicey stories, in case you're wondering. Um, we're talking about like kings that tried to make a treaty with another king. So even though the king was married, he gave him another young woman to be his wife, and so he divorced his wife, and he brought this young woman in, and then this young woman eventually uh, is murdered by his wife, and then he's poisoned by, I mean, just good, clean, interesting reading, kind of like soap opera kind of stuff. And it's referred to here in the scriptures, many of these kinds of things, one after another, 135 details. And so in chapter 11 and verse 2, there's a reference to the dominance of Persia. And we know when you read the book of Daniel, you know that the visions in 2 and 7, remember the image in 2 and the beast in 7, are talking about the kingdoms of the world, one following another. You've track, you've tracking with that. Well, this does that same thing, and it focuses from Persia through the time of, of Greece, and it even mentions Rome, and it gets into some incredible detail in the Bible. But to give you a broad overview, it'd be in chapter 11, verse 2, it's talking about the Persian dominance. And then in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, it moves to talk about the Grecian dominance and the Grecian leaders. We'll talk about those in a minute. And then in chapter 11, verses 5 through 20, it talks about Egypt and Syria, calls Egypt, the, king, the, the leader of Egypt, the king of the south, the leader of Syria, the king of the north, is how it refers to it in Daniel. 
and then Antiochus and Syria in chapter 11, verses 21 through 35. So you have these, these powers that are described. Another way to look at it would be to see, and someone who said, I think it was Mark Hitchcock, I borrowed this from, I know I borrowed this from Mark Hitchcock. He said, one way to look at it is to see the five A kings, uh, Ahasuerus, or also known as Xerxes, that's, he's described in chapter 11 and verse 2, the Persian king. Then Alexander uh, the Great in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, and it's kind of clearly identified as Alexander. And then Antiochus the Great in chapter 11, verses 10 through 20. And then Antiochus Epiphanes gets a lot of ink because, again, this is kind of the point that Daniel's making so that we recognize the personage in the end time. And this is a foreshadowing of that real clearly when you compare the prophetic passages of Scripture and the things that they describe. And then, as I mentioned, the Antichrist in chapter 11, verses 36 through 45. So the kings and the nations in this text are battling back and forth. They're taking revenge. They're, 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 um, they're taking revenge and wives against each other. They trampled down the land of Israel in between. So again, over and over again, the narrative in chapter 11 is the kings of the north, the king of the north, and the king of the south. And they battle back and forth in an almost ridiculous kind of exchange of warfare and revenge, one revenge on top of another, back and forth. But the only way for the king of the north to get to the king of the south, or the king of the south to get to the king of the north, is to trample through Israel. And when they do that, they do violence in Israel. The only other way is by way of sea. And that's another story. And that's where Rome comes in. But that's beyond the scope of our stories today. They trample down the land of Israel. If you look in chapter 11, and, and verse uh, 16, you see that. In chapter 11 and verse 16, he who comes against him will do as he wills. It's describing now jumping to the middle of these battles between the king of the south, the king of the north, between Syria and Egypt, Israel in between. And verse 16 says, he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And you can hear Jesus saying, and the, and the Jerusalem will be trodden down until the time of the Gentiles is completed. And this is what has happened, obviously, in human history. No one can deny it. They trampled down the land of Israel, chapter 11 and verse 16. They oppressed the people of Israel, uh, chapter 11, and probably the reference there in verse 20, then shall rise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. Most Bible scholars believe this is a reference to the people of Israel as well. Certainly in verse 31 of chapter 11, the worship of Israel is interrupted. So in other words, in the battles between the king of the north and the king of the south that have dominance for a few hundred years over this region uh, following the power of Alexander the Great as the Grecian Empire is broken up into parts, Israel gets trampled over. And there's a dark thing that's going on. It's trampling down the land. It's, it's oppressing the people. It's actually interrupting the worship of Israel. Verse 31, he forces him from him, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. And this is what Jesus refers to. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, 
but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So again, they trample down the land of Israel. They oppress the people of Israel. They interrupt the worship of Israel. And there's something darker and more ominous than simple human antagonism, simple human ambition going on here. There are dark forces moving men and nations to oppress the people of God and to oppose the work of God. And yet God is weaving all that darkness into his beautiful purpose of light. God's people will suffer long hardship, he's saying, but they will survive. And this is important. Now, whenever we never want to stray far, when we're studying the Bible, we never want to stray far from asking this powerful question, like a golden key to understand the scriptures. And we never want to stray far from the question, what was the author's intent? Like, who was the author? What was the setting? Who was he writing to? Why was he writing this? What was the author's intent? Over and over again, one should ask oneself this question. And how would the original audience have understood this? When we answer those questions, then the key question, what does God want me to do? And what does God want us to do as a church? They always come forward, even as a family, they come forward in clarity. When you ask the question of a passage of scripture, what was the original intent of the author? How would the original audience have heard this? Then it's not difficult to see how would I apply that to my circumstances? Why would God want me to have this copy of the Bible in my lap and be reading this, uh, this, these cryptic references to ancient history. Why would he be doing that? What, what's up here? The author's intent here was to encourage the people to trust God and obey him and to have confidence in his sovereign power and to prepare for hardship and to anticipate the eternal kingdom, also known as the city four square, as we already heard about today. Can I repeat that? The author's intent was to encourage the people to trust God and obey him and to have confidence in his sovereign power and to prepare for hardship and to anticipate the eternal kingdom. And I say to you, Bethel, loved ones, and families of Bethel, and single men that are here, and single women that are here, I would say to you, God's intent for your life is to encourage you to trust God, to obey God, to have confidence in his sovereign power, and to prepare for hardship and anticipate an eternal kingdom. That's a timeless truth. That's God's intent. Now, here is the sweet spot of the passage. You probably already saw it. Here's the text that expresses the big idea of the passage. This is what God wants his people to know. Even in a time of great trouble, the people who know God, the King James said it this, I remember as a boy reading, will be strong and, anybody know else it says, do exploits. Be strong and do exploits. The people, so in the middle of all this kind of confusing historic detail that we may or may not track, it says this, then God's people are going to be opposed. They're going to be attacked. But the people who know God will be strong and do exploits. The people who know God, according to the ESV that we're using here, will stand firm and take action. Now, that's what we want. Would you agree? When a difficult time comes, when an extended difficult time comes, when we feel like we're being trampled down, when we're a doormat for other people, when things aren't going the way we wish that they could go, when our, heart, when our heartaches pile up one on top of another, when we are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, God those who know God are strong and do exploits. They, they, they stand strong and they, they take action 
And this even happens in this intertestamental period that you can read about in the intertestamental books in the Maccabean Revolt. It's pretty interesting stuff. But when I was a young man, um, Neil Veit referred to this book a few weeks ago. When he was preaching, he referred to the classic J.I. Packer's classic, Knowing God. And when I was a boy, I read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And in his book, he quotes A.W. Tozer, which uh, Neil also uh, referred to. And he quotes Charles Spurgeon, a message from the, the famous English Baptist pastor of the Victorian area when he was 18 years old. He quotes Tozer and he quotes Spurgeon on knowing God. Now, nothing I said today may have impressed you. But what I'm about to read to you from Tozer and Spurgeon is going to be worth the price of your admission today. And so I want to read this to you, a bit of an extended quote. But listen, this is why Dr. Veit rec recommended this to us, prescribed this to us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Remember, the people who know their God, the people who know their God. What comes to our mind when we think about God, that's the most important thing about us. Without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. The weightiest word in the English language is the word for God. Our idea of God, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of intense importance to us. The man who comes, or the woman, who comes to the right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems, Tozer said. For he or she sees at once that these have to do with matters which at, at, at most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, that one mighty single burden of eternity presses down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul and obey him perfectly and to worship him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has done none of these things but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty of the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. But Tozer says, the gospel, though, can lift this destroying burden from the mind. Give beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe, no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. That was profound. So he says, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and her, the church, in all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. You could say the church needs the gospel in the New Testament and the church needs the law in the Old Testament to rightly understand who God is and to rightly appreciate and enjoy and apply the good news of the gospel, one has to have an understanding of God's absolute holiness. And this Spurgeon saw when he was a young man, and he was in, you can read this in the New Park Street pulpit that recorded the 
servants of Spurgeon. I want you to imagine as I read this, an 18-year-old young man. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, Spurgeon said. Nothing will so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious trinity. What was Spurgeon saying? Most important thing in the world is knowing God. What was Packer saying? Knowing God is the most important thing. What was Tozer saying? Knowing God is the most important thing in the world. You're not ready for the gospel until you know something of God and his law. And what was it that, the, that the, what was the message to Daniel? It's the people that did exploits were the ones who knew God. And so here Spurgeon continues and says, the proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, the existence of the great God which he calls his Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects can be comprehended and we can grapple with them. In them we feel a kind of self-content to go our way with a thought, behold, I'm wise. But when we come to this master science, that is theology, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away from the thought, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. So now he gives a flourish of questions you should hear. What were we made for to know God? What aims should we have for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life which Jesus gives? It is the knowledge of God. For he said, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything? This person says, it's knowing God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the, he's quoting Jeremiah here. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. More important than any of those other things. Here's another question Spurgeon asks. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? The knowledge of himself. He says in Hosea 6, 6, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God says, it's good for you to know me, and it pleases me for you to know me, and it's the greatest joy in life for you to know me. This is the knowledge of God, the people who know God. And then finally, Spurgeon comes winding in here at the end and says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. That was where, Spur where Tozer said, one is relieved of 10,000 temporal burdens. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination, lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has. In a way, no other man has. What higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? The people who know their God, they will stand strong. They will act valiant. They'll take action. So I want to share you four things. Four things that people who know God know. First of all, People who know God know the Bible is true. This is what this text is teaching us. The Bible is true to the details. The Bible is not a collection of vague, inspirational sentiments. 
The, it, the Bible is a bold, detailed record of names, of dates, of places, of people. Think about this. If a person just said, well, here's a little sentiment, no one could argue with it. But if I start naming names and places and things and dates, now I can be cross-checked, can't I? And it could be easily exposed as a fraud. It was not, uh, if the Bible wasn't accurate, it would long ago have been exposed as a fraud. Our faith is not based on an ethic or uh, an ethical system or a philosophy of life, but on time and place events that were miraculously and providentially caused or arranged by God. And the Bible is inspiring, yes, but, and it does contain an ethical system, yes. And it is true and a true and useful philosophy of life, yes. It's the best, but in essence, that's not what it is. In essence, it's a bold assertion that God has acted in human affairs, set in motion a plan of winning back this wayward world until he establishes an eternal kingdom on earth and ushers in the eternal state, the new heaven, the new earth, the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God, or you could say the city that's built four square. Those who know God know that that record is true. And that's why they stand firm and take action. And I just want to tell you, young and old alike, no one will stand firm and take action who isn't convinced that the Bible is true. And the purpose of this text is to show us the Bible is very true. It's truth of truth. It's big, uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer called it big T truth. So the people who know God know the Bible is true. That's what this passage is teaching us. Second, the people who know God know God is in control. That is what this passage is teaching us. Three times in the passage, it says, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, at the appointed time. Interesting, because it just looks like people are acting in a humanly arbitrary way, doing what they want to do, when they want to do it, on their lust, on their whim. But the way the Bible describes it was at the appointed time, this happened, at the appointed time. This is a reference to the providence, to the sovereignty, the overarching sovereignty of God. You get this, don't you? This is a great comfort that makes people strong to realize God is in con work, God is in control. When you read the Bible carefully, this is what you see and this is the whole, you, re, you realize when we preach through Daniel, we say the same thing over and over again, right? You, you realize that that's what we do. It's, it's, it, that's, the, that's kind of the mag, uh, magic, the deeper magic from before the, the dawn of time kind of magic. C.S. Lewis put it that way. Lest I get myself in trouble for talking about magic from the pulpit. It's the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. This is the thing, and that is the word of God comes from the mind and the heart of the eternal God including details and times and places and people. And our faith is based on the objective fact that God came into this world in the person of his son, Jesus, died on a cross, was buried, and that he rose again, and that really happened. And therefore, out of that grows a wonderful ethical system and a great philosophy of life and a bunch of really great inspirational quotes as well. But the reality is, this is, you, this, think of this, this anchors you, young person, this anchors your life. Is the Bible true? Yes, the Bible is true. Is God in control? Yes, God is always in control. Never stray from your allegiance to the Bible or to your fidelity to God because the Bible is true and God is in control. And life is hard. This is interesting. Life is hard. I mean, you can't escape this lesson from chapter 11. Life is exceedingly hard. All kinds of, it's basically like the message from God is, hey, God is in control of everything. 
and you can trust his prophecies, and you guys are in for hundreds of years of oppression and difficulty and hardship and, and torture and death. Prepare yourself. See what it says. Man is sinful. Life is short. We will suffer. He's appealing to them, and he's appealing to us to have a long-suffering faithfulness. And as a pastor, I often talk with people who are having trouble continuing to obey and to believe because they've tried things for a little while. But the Bible doesn't call us to a short obedience. It calls us to a long obedience, a long faithfulness. And it doesn't promise us that things will be easy in a fallen world. Um, it promises us that things will be hard and that life will be hard. That's what you see in chapter 11, verse 16, that we read chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. It's an abomination that makes desolate. And to describe that near referent that happened in the time of Daniel and far referent, I believe it will happen clearly in the end time, is a staggering thing. It's very hard. Margaret Burrett is, uh, he, works with others to head up our uh, our uh, visitation team, and she probably doesn't appreciate me bringing up her name, but she arranged a, an opportunity for me to do some ministry on Friday. And in the medical care facility, she, she got together, and others did this too, got together a group of ladies, faithful ladies who love the Lord for communion, and I was privileged to go there. And it was such a time, such a time of faithful ladies. I hesitate to say much because it's just sacred, but I, I want to carefully say one dear sister who was there loved the Lord so much and wanted to be a part of that communion and could not physically bring the cup to her lips because of arthritis or some problem. And, and I watched her struggle just to take, the, and then someone come over and help her to put the elements of communion to her lips. When we were done there, I was so blessed and so encouraged by the little stories that I heard and by the faith that was expressed by those ladies who love the Lord. And then Marcus said, I want you to meet somebody. She took me down the hall, introduced me to a missionary, a lady named Winnie, who had been a missionary in Japan for like 45 years. Winnie, Winnie said, you guys probably know her. She says to me, um, I went to Prairie Bible Institute. And at the end of World War II, she knew Elizabeth Elliott who went to Prairie Bible Institute for a year. She said, when General Douglas MacArthur gave a message after World War II, Japan needs missionaries. Send all the missionaries you can to Japan. This would, can you imagine a time when a, when a general said, send all the missionaries you can to Japan. She and her friends heard that appeal and went to Japan and spent their lives. Isn't that amazing? She went single, got married on the mission field and spent her life in, in, in missions, and, and met her husband, and he passed away a few years ago, and she's up in her 90 and 94, 96, something, she's elderly, and she said, and she mentioned in passing, it's hard, it's hard. She said, it's hard. But then she's, because we're taking communion, we're thinking about the cross, and she had prepared herself for communion. She said, it's hard. But she's remained faithful all those years. And why has she remained faithful? How did she remain faithful? Because she knows God. Because people who know God, they know the Bible is true. And people who know God know that God is in control. And people who really know God, they know that life is hard. 
The human record in Daniel of kings and nations is a record of hatred and chaos and demonic struggle. It's very much like the book of Revelation. On earth and among men and women, things are dark, things are empty, things are ugly. But God acts in order and beauty. And around the throne of God, there is never any anxiety. And the closer we get to God, and the more that we know God, the more God helps us deal with our human fear, which is natural. And the fourth thing, the people who know God know the Bible is true. They know that God is in control. They know and expect that life is hard. They also know that Jesus is coming to deliver. They also know and they're enthused about the fact that Jesus is coming someday to deliver. This, is, this makes them excited. In some churches, they actually even say hallelujah or amen at a time like that. Not all churches. Some are very quiet. They're like Presbyterians. But even if they're Baptists, they just sit quietly and they look at you. They let you do all the talking. But in some churches, people actually, they stand and they shout and they sing. Some of them roll in the aisles. Lois, remember, we were in Ohio and we went out to go to a Sunday night service. Lois has given me the look right now because I'm picking on you for not saying amen. So she's give. I want you to know she's in your corner and she's giving me the, the wife look. Just so you know, we went out to church on a Sunday night. You remember this, Lois? And we wanted to go somewhere to church. Do you remember this? She never, she never remembers these things. It's like I make this stuff up and then you never confirm my story. You will remember this. We were in Cedarville and we were looking for a Sunday night service. We stopped in a little village and we could hear some tuneful music coming out of this church. So we got out and we walked up to the back of this church. And when we walked, there were little stairs up to the back. We got in, there was a lady laying across the aisle. Do you remember this now? And I looked around and Lois was gone. I'm like, I, you know, I was going to go in and worship. But Lois was like, I'm out. She just goes back. That was, that was a little beyond her scope of comfortability. And she was out. Me too. So I love you. I, I'm not picking on you. But Jesus is coming back someday. And that's what we should be most excited about. And that's what we should, that was should root our belief. Yeah, this life is hard, but this life isn't all there is to it. Jesus is coming. And Jesus is the subject of Daniel, in case you've missed it. Jesus is the subject of Daniel. Shall I prove it? Okay, then I will. Jesus is the food in chapter one. He's definitely the stone in chapter two. Absolutely the stone cut out of the mountain in chapter two. And Jesus is the, in the fire in chapter 3. And Jesus is the shoot from the stump in chapter 4. And Jesus is the handwriting on the wall of judgment in chapter 5. And Jesus, Daniel himself is a picture of Jesus' resurrection in chapter 6. They removed the stone and he's a, Jesus is the coming son of man clearly and explicitly in chapter 7. Jesus is the prince of princes, the antichrist opposes in chapter 8. And Jesus is Messiah, the anointed Christ in chapter 9. And in this final picture, Jesus is pictured by the angelic messenger in verses 10 through 12. No one could have seen him without thinking about Jesus. And that's what devout people do. We sing a song here. And we just introduced it. It goes like this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ is our hope in life and in death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. 
Where is his grace and goodness known in our great Redeemer's blood? Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward shall heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. And so we sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. We sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ is our hope in life and in death. Amen.